a great joy to be able to gather as God's people Sunday by Sunday to praise God for his goodness to us, to uh, lift our songs in praise and worship, and uh, to gather around his word. So I invite you to do that with me this morning as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. You'll find it in the Pew Bible on page 808. You'll also find it in the bulletin or the program on page 8, including, you'll notice, the Greek New Testament, which um, I've been including lately. So you'll find all that available to you at your fingertips. Uh, Please stand. The reading from Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you'd please send your Holy Spirit upon us. The same spirit that moved your servant Matthew to record these words. The same spirit that moved your servant John to say these words. Uh, the same spirit, Father, that brought your son into the world and, uh, and pointed us towards him that we might know who he is. Uh, we pray, Father, now that that same spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds, that you would draw us to yourself in Christ for his sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Advent is the season of preparation. We've been talking about that the last uh, couple of weeks. We've been singing about it and praying about it. We've been lighting the candles. The idea is to prepare us and to get us thinking about the themes of this season. Um, And preparation is very much the theme of this season. Uh, It's um, something we started talking about last week. You'll see the ESV editors on page 808 have actually labeled this whole section that we're going to look at, John the Baptist prepares the way. Uh, Over and over again, this idea of preparation shows up. Uh, It shows up in in the uh, quote that's given from Isaiah that you'll see in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Uh, preparation. How do you prepare? How do you prepare for Christmas? Uh, it's a big holiday in our culture here in our uh, part of the world. Christmas is a, a celebration that is impossible to miss. Uh, it's interesting having kids around. We've got five uh, grandkids in one house and another baby grand in another house. And uh, they're at different ages and stages. But it's it's really wonderful as they begin to hear these Things that we, many of us, have heard for years and years and years to hear them hear those things and see them as they learn the story of the birth of Christ. Um, It's a wonderful thing to see and 
I mentioned a moment ago during the announcements, our little pageant uh, that we'll be having next Sunday is one of the ways that we try to help our young people and all of us to prepare for the birth of Christ by reflecting again on this great story. So it's, it's about preparation, and I, I'd really like to ask you, how do you prepare? How in your home, in your life, do you prepare uh, for the reality of Christ, both his birth and uh, other things about uh, the significance that he has for each one of us? How do you prepare? Um, this morning, I want to pull out a few themes from what Matthew records, uh, and I've called it preparing versus presuming. He uses both of these ideas in this passage, and I'd like for us to think about the idea of preparing versus the idea of presuming. So let's see what we can learn from Matthew. Preparing, verses 7 to 8. When John saw many of the Pharisees and said, he's coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, actually, John has said this essentially before, back in chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's how he pronounces this season of preparation. The way John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord was by calling men and women to repentance. And so that's what he's doing here. He's preparing the people by calling them to repentance. Now, this idea of repentance is a really, really important concept. That same word, in fact, those exact same words that John uses in chapter 3, verse 2, if you look across the page to chapter 4, verse 17, you'll see that the Lord Jesus himself uses exactly the same words to describe as he preached the gospel, he used exactly the same words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Word for word, the same message that John preaches in chapter 3, verse 2. This idea of, of preparing by repenting. Um, one of the ways that my family and I prepare for uh, Christmas and the wonderful joys of this season is by listening to something called Handel's Messiah. Uh, I got home yesterday afternoon uh, and my wife had set up uh, our new little mini home pod that our kids got us that we I got it on my birthday we just got it set up yesterday and uh, I walked in the door to Handel's Messiah this beautiful oratorio written in the 18th century by uh, Handel and it's so beautiful, and it's such a stirring reflection on Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the promised fulfillment of the, of the Bible. And uh, it, was, it was a beautiful thing to hear and to, to reflect on as I, as I walked in the house. And there are all kinds of ways that we can just reflect on what Jesus has done as we prepare to celebrate his birth, to reflect on the, the fact that he is the fulfillment of what the scriptures promise. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And we celebrate his birth because of what he has done. Uh, you may know that the, uh, the uh, beautiful music we call Messiah was not originally written for Christmas time. It's almost always sung, at least in our time, at Christmas time. But it was actually written for Easter. 
And the hallelujah chorus was not about the, the birth of Jesus. It was about the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, it's because of Jesus' death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension into heaven. Now we are able to fully understand the significance of his birth. And we prepare for that glorious, glorious reality of Christ by repenting. Now what does repent mean? It's one of those words we've seen so often. You may not actually pause to think about what it means. Um, Repentance has a lot of different connotations to different people. Uh, In some contexts, repent means to quit doing something. Uh, It may mean to quit doing that particular sin that besets you. And that can be definitely an element of repentance. It, it must be, as John says later in this passage, uh, there, there is a, um, a sense in which our behaviors, the ways, the things that we do and don't do, reflect our attitude of repentance. So there's an element of that. But if that's all we think of when we think of repentance, we will not understand what John the Baptist is saying. Because here John the Baptist is not actually saying do a moral inventory of your life and quit doing things that the Bible says you shouldn't do. That's not the concept that he had in his mind. Uh, How do I know that? Because he was doing it at a ceremony of baptism. And baptism to us as Christians, we think we know what it means. But for the Jewish people, what baptism signified was a joining of the covenant community. It It was not so much... A repentance by not doing a few things. It was actually a, an idea that had to do with relationship. So when John was calling the people out into the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, and he called them to repentance, what he was actually saying was not quit doing a few of these things that you've been doing. He's not even saying start doing a few of these things that you haven't been doing. What he's actually saying is come out with me and let us together relate to the Lord. Let us turn to the covenant God of the, of the Bible, the covenant God of the Old Testament covenant, the covenant God that Jesus proclaims. Let us turn to him and now relate to him, relate to one another and relate to him. And all of that is wrapped up in this rich word repentance. So of course, Jesus nor John actually used the word repent. Because they did not speak English. Nor, by the way, did they speak Greek, necessarily. They probably said these words in a dialect of their location, maybe Aramaic. It was translated into Greek. And the the word that's used in Greek is not repent, the English word, but a wonderful Greek word, metanoia. In fact, if you look at the Greek New Testament translation, third line, third word from the right, it says metanoia. You can read it in Greek. The language Matthew used to record these words. Now you may not realize this, I'm taking a Greek class. I might have mentioned it one or two dozen times. I'm joined today not only by a classmate who sits right behind me, or right in front of me at Greek class, Hayden, uh, but also uh, Colton Huckabee who's here. And where's Brian? Brian Day, who's taking it online. Let me tell you, it is a wonderful thing to study the Greek language because you really do grasp much more uh, in terms of the meaning that is actually meant to be communicated. 
Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, a few weeks ago, October 31st, we celebrated, well, it was Halloween. It was All Saints Day, Reformation Day. That was the day on which, in 1517, a young uh, monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And there were 95 theses. The very first thesis, the very first topic of discussion that Martin Luther posted there on those doors 505 years ago read this in English. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, and he's quoting Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. When Jesus said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Now why was that so important to Luther? Well, it was because Luther had come to understand the Greek word metanoia. See, he used a Bible called the Vulgate Bible. It was a Latin translation of the Bible. And in the Latin translation, the word metanoia was translated do penance. The word for repent was translated do penance. And so in the Catholic system of his day, repentance had been reduced to this sacramental process of going and taking your specific sins that you want to quit doing or maybe the things you're supposed to do that you're not doing. You take it to a priest and the priest gives you penance to go and do. And it might be say the Lord's Prayer a thousand times or it might be do pilgrimage on your knees. It depends on what you did and how much the priest liked you. And that was what repentance had come to mean. And that's the way many people viewed repentance. It was something they had to grit their teeth and do. And it was often a really hard thing. And it was often a legalistic thing. And so Luther was saying to his culture, and let me say, I think he's saying it to our culture too, repentance is not about you're doing something. It's about an attitude of your heart and your mind. It's actually an attitude of your heart and your mind that will be part of your coming to Christ, but it will be your whole life. Your whole life will be characterized by repentance. It's not merely not doing a few things or doing a few other things. It's not your to-do list at all. It has to do with your relationship. That's what John was preparing the way of the Lord by doing. He's calling people to relate to the covenant God of the scriptures by coming to him, by changing my, one's mind about someone and something and turning to Jesus. So that change of heart and change of mind will lead to all kinds of things. It will mean over time we will examine our moral life. It will mean over time we will seek to be more like Jesus. It will mean, as John the Baptist says later in this passage, that we'll seek to, to bear good fruit. Absolutely. But that's not where it begins, and that's not the real point. The real point is to turn to God Almighty, and because Jesus uses these same words, we know it means turning to Jesus, who is the second person of the divine Godhead. Turning to Jesus is what it means to repent. 
means turn to Him. Relate to Him. Yes, confess our sins, but confess our faith. That's what repentance had to do with. And so that's where John began. That's where Jesus begins. When Jesus began preaching the kingdom, he began by preaching repentance. And it has to do with this idea of turning to the Lord. And that is the way we prepare for him. That is the way I hope you will be preparing this Advent season for the celebration of Christmas. Let me tell you, there's very little in our culture that is on our side when it comes to trying to do that. You know as well as I do, the world has a lot to say about snowmen and reindeer, but very, very little to say about true repentance. Truly turning to the God who created us and loves us in Christ. But as John's telling it here, and as it's going to be revealed through the rest of Matthew's gospel, that is what repentance is all about. It's turning to the Lord, acknowledging Him. And one of the goals that my kids have for their kids and that Grandma and and I have for our grandkids. I know Gwen has for our Sunday school. And I'm sure every parent in this room has for your children. And every one of us has for the young people around us and all those around us is we want Christmas to be a season when people turn to Christ. When they repent by turning to Christ. There is absolutely no better way to celebrate Christmas than by turning to Jesus and allowing Jesus to be reborn in our hearts to begin a lifelong relationship with discipleship and repentance and an an abiding love that we simply can't imagine that God could love us so much. So it's not about being lugubrious or wallowing in some of our past mistakes. It's not about those things. It's about glorying in Christ. That's true metanoia. That's true repentance in the fullest sense. This humbling of oneself, acknowledging one's own neediness is what it means to repent. That's what it means to prepare. And John was all about it. That's what you should do. That's where he begins. Repent. And of course, as he always did, he quoted from the Old Testament to drive the point home. And that we should hear that this Christmas season. We should hear that as we prepare to meet Christ when he comes again in glory. Now, interestingly, here, John sets in contrast preparing and presuming. Actually, this passage has a lot to say about presuming. Look, look at what happens here in, in uh, verses 7 to 10. When, when, he, when John saw many, the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, John the Baptist did not mince words. <laughs> you might have noticed that about him. John the Baptist did not mince words. He was very direct. He didn't have a lot of time. And so John doesn't beat around the bush. He confronts these Pharisees and Sadducees with language that, honestly, I'd be reluctant to use, you brood of vipers. You don't see that on a Christmas card very often. (laughs) You brood of vipers. Who told you to repent? But that's 
the directness of John the Baptist. He would die not long after this. His ministry would be very brief in the the big scheme of things. He came to prepare the way of the Lord by calling to preparation, not to presumption. Now, the example of presumptuousness is provided, as is often the case in the New Testament, by this group of people, Pharisees and Sadducees. And if you look in the um, Greek translation, and you ever wondered what Pharisees and Sadducees look like in Greek language, which is what um, uh, Matthew was using. If you look at uh, the first line, the uh, fifth and seventh words, that's Pharisee and Sadducean. Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we've been hearing the story long enough that we know when you say Pharisees and Sadducees, there's supposed to be this prolonged boo and hiss, right? We know that. You don't have to go to Sunday school for very long to know the Pharisees and the Sadducees were kind of the ones that often confront Jesus in the Gospels. But if we'd been alive in the first century, and if we'd been members of the community that Jesus was a part of and that Matthew's describing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually the religious people. They were the good people. They were the respectable people. They were the people who got up and went to synagogue. They were the people who were actually very careful about keeping every single rule, especially the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very big about the moral law. The Sadducees, they were focused on the institution. They were very, very focused on the religious institution. The Pharisees were were focused on the moral keeping of the law and the the being distinct and separate by keeping the law. Paul was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says of himself. The Sadducees, they were the group that included the high priests and the most important religious leaders in the community, the ones who ran the temple, the ones who were in all the processions and they were most marked out in the official religious institution of the day. They were the religious institutional leaders. Well, Jesus actually, in the context of speaking to them later on in his ministry, identifies them often as the great challenge to his work. It wasn't the tax collectors. We have a young man whose dad is a tax collector who's sitting here with us today. He's saying, don't don't mention that today. But we do have a young man whose dad is a tax collector. And uh, in Jesus' day, in John the Baptist's day, tax collectors were not people you particularly wanted to hang out with because they were seen as people who were participating with the Roman occupation. They were were Jewish people who were part of the uh, oppressive Roman uh, uh, institution that dominated the society where they lived. They were often crooked. They took bribes. So you might think Jesus would have a lot of hard words to say to tax collectors. Actually, that's not true. I mean, he he talks about turning to him. He talks about, about living a life that reflects the values of the kingdom. We will see that as Jesus teaches. But he doesn't actually say anything like you brood of vipers to the tax collectors, nor does he say that to the prostitutes. 
Jesus is described as interacting with prostitutes. He's described as interacting with sinful people. He's described as interacting with people who were ritually unclean. He regularly did it. He would go and visit the most amazing people. He would go into their homes and fellowship with them. It was the religious people that were often the ones out to get Jesus. I think that is a very sobering word for us today. Who are the religious people? We are the religious ones. We're the ones who get dressed on Sunday morning and go to church. I think that is meant to be a sobering word for us. It's not meant to mean that that we're somehow not able to repent and turn to the Lord. But I do think it means there are some special challenges that come with the lifestyle that we live and some of the attitudes that we have. It is very, very easy. Let me tell you as a 64-year-old Christian, I can vouch for this personally. It is very, very easy to slip into this attitude of thinking of ourselves as somehow better than the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those who wrestle, who are outside the kingdom. It's very, very easy to begin to think of ourselves as somehow in our own right, very special. And that somehow in our own right, we have some, something to brag about, some, some attitude of heart or mind that, that we're different and it doesn't apply to us. It applies to those dirty people over there, but it doesn't apply to us. And it's so easy for this attitude of presumptuousness to sneak into our way of thinking and relating and talking, behaving towards other people. This idea of presuming. Well, John the Baptist wasn't going to have any part of it. He called them exactly what they were. They, they had allowed themselves. These were people of the covenant. They'd allowed themselves to become like Satan. That's what Satan is, is a viper, a snake. When, when John calls them a brood of vipers, he's not just choosing some random mean thing to say. He's saying to them, you're like Satan when you allow yourself to do that. When you allow yourself to become convinced of your, your personal righteousness, your personal importance. Brood of vipers, he says. And he talks honestly about the wrath to come. John talked about the wrath to come. But you know who was clearest about the wrath to come and who talked about it more than anybody else? Jesus. Jesus talks about the wrath to come. Why? Because he loves us. It's not because he hates us that he tells us the truth. It's because he loves us. And here John is being very Christ-like. In the midst of these hard words, there's this glimpse of grace and hope that this group of people might reflect on the seriousness of God's wrath and turn instead, verse 8, to repentance and bearing fruit which is in keeping with repentance. Again, the, the real focus is not on the fruit, it's on the repentance. What he's saying is, in, within the context of the renewed, restored relationship, within the context of turning again and changing our mind and relating to the Lord, within that context, brothers and sisters, there will be fruit. 
We will see transformation. We will see attitudes change over time. Sometimes we're less aware of it in ourselves than other people are aware of it. You know, I've known a few of you for years and years and years and years. And I can tell you, it gives me great joy to look at a brother or sister whom I've known for a long time to see them having grown, bearing fruit that befits this changed relationship, this changed attitude. I guarantee it, as we turn to Christ, there will be fruit. And it's not usually a matter of our gritting our teeth and trying desperately to fulfill this to-do list. It's actually behaviors that God brings within us as he conforms our heart to Jesus. And that's what John says. Bear fruit that befits that. That's what it will look like. And don't presume on how long you've been a church member or what office you've held or or how long your grandparents were Christians or your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents. Don't look to those things as justification as the Pharisees did, as the Sadducees did. They looked to these human connections and they found their confidence, their hope, their faith there. Don't do that. Don't do that. This Christmas, this Advent and this Christmas, the best way we can prepare for Jesus is to repent of all that arrogance, all that presumptuousness that that creeps into all of our lives to repent of that. Uh, Christian uh, and and, uh, Paul Hargrove have been studying a wonderful book in the men's Bible study. Some of you have been going. It's called uh, Rediscovering Humility. And this is a great quote from the, the very first chapter. He says, I believe humility to be at the very heart of Christian faith and even to be the best paradigm of all proper thought regarding God, oneself and others. Humility is the greatest prerequisite to faith in Christ and its most telling result. It is the alpha and omega of the gospel at work in God's people. Humility ought to be the most prominent centerpiece of any Christian worldview. I think that is absolutely right. And man, we need to rediscover humility. We need to rediscover repentance. We need to rediscover the the amazing fact that God loves us in spite of our brokenness. And to come to him to seek his mercy. I opened this sermon by mentioning Martin Luther. You know what Martin Luther's last words were? I didn't know this till this week. Well, February the 16th, 1546, when Martin Luther lay dying after a distinguished career, he was one of the rare reformers who lived to die of old age. When Martin Luther lay dying, his very last recorded words are these, we are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. And by that, he did not mean that we did not have the righteousness of Christ. He did not mean that we had no significance in the eternal purposes of God. We are made rich in God through Christ. 
We're brothers and sisters on our own. Every single one of us are all broken, needy beggars. And there's not a single person alive that I can look down on that I can think that somehow it doesn't apply to them, that there's no hope for them, that they're somehow worse than me or worse than you, worse than us, because we are all beggars. And as we prepare our hearts by reflecting on that, it will affect the way we deal with every stranger who walks in the door. Doesn't matter how broken they are, how messed up their life may be, how mentally ill they may may be. We love them because God loves them. He brought them in the door. And so we'll repent of presuming when it comes to dealing with other people. It'll, it'll affect the way we deal with God. We'll be humbled when we approach the one who has shown us so much grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. It will, it will humble us and make us so grateful for what God has done. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that it is surely only a true grasp of the New Testament doctrine of sin that enables us to realize the greatness of God's love to us. We only really understand the greatness of God's love to us when we repent and when we repent of the presumptuousness that all too often clings to us. Repent. Repent.